Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Good morning. My name is Michael. Good morning. That was my son. I'll pay him. I'll pay him later for that shout out. Uh, my name is Michael. I'm on the teaching team at Damascus Road Church. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning, and I'm excited to be able to share with you from the words of Jesus and what we call the Beatitudes, which is just a weird way of saying blessed. We're going through a series this fall, focusing on these statements that Jesus makes of what it looks like to live a blessed life. We'll break that down a little bit more as we move ahead. Uh, first, I wanted to share with you guys real quick about a friend of mine named Chris. Hey, Chris is from Beloit. Anybody here from Beloit? Anybody? Um, so, so Chris is from Beloit. Chris is a, little, is a little bit rough around the edges. If you, if you were hanging out with Chris, I'm sure that he, you would either like really like him or you might not really like him. Uh, he's a good dude. And if he was here, he'd, he'd think that was funny too. Um, so Chris is a real person. Yeah, Chris is a little rough around the edges. He grew up um, a fair amount in the streets in Beloit, um, lost his family, um, had a fight to survive. He's been shot. He's got scars on his back. Um, he's a good dude. Chris met Jesus, and his life changed. His life, he, was, he was healed um, spiritually, emotionally. He was healed. He was transformed, and he's seen lots of other people get saved, healed, and transformed too. Like I said, Chris is a little bit rough around the edges. He's a little bit salty. His language is a little bit salty. He's a little bit angsty, and something that he gets real angsty about is when Christians aren't excited about Jesus. Yeah. They're like, all right, bro, let's just have some compassion. Like, let's get on the same page. But I was, I was hanging out with Chris and, and some friends talking together about how amazing it is that, that God is our king, but also our father, like how he fathers us, what that looks like in our lives. So I'm hanging out with him and some other friends, and I'm just getting to know Chris at this point, and he leans forward in his chair. And he goes, this is like first five minutes. What's the sin that you struggle with the most? <laughs> I'm like, okay, let's grab a coffee afterwards. You can ask me anything. You can ask me anything. Let's shelf that for now. Let's dig into like something that's actually beneficial for everybody in this room. And um, so he sits back and then he leans forward again. And Chris gets that look in his face. You know something's coming. He's like, what's the hardest thing about following Jesus? And he's not testing me. Like, the dude wants to know Jesus desperately. What's the hardest thing about following Jesus? And I think about it for a second, but it doesn't take me long because I know what my answer is to that question. And it's, uh, and it's not like some theoretical question or something I read in a book. From my experience, the hardest thing, the most frustrating thing about following Jesus is that the only thing that's predictable is that he's good. The only thing that's predictable is that he is good and he's loving and he's powerful. Everything else is up for grabs. <laughs> like he's so faithful. He's so faithful at like keeping our eyes on him that he won't let us get distracted with methods and tools for serving him. You know what I'm saying? This worked last time. Surely this is going to work this time. Oh, I'm really good at this. And Jesus is like, let's just pull that away for now. Let's keep your eyes on me. 
Like he's just so good that he keeps us, he keeps us focused on him and he won't let us substitute other things for him. He's unpredictable. But his goodness is always reliable. So that was my answer to Chris that day. And I hope some of you get to know Chris here pretty soon. Um, I was, another time, not too long ago, I was hanging out with some friends in Amman, Jordan. And I was hanging out with some friends from, it was a mix of Egyptians, Palestinians, Jordanians, some people, some a Kurdish guy, some Syrians. And a lot of these guys uh, that I was hanging out with um, come from a Muslim background. They decided at one point, they made a radical choice that they were going to follow Jesus. So I'm hanging out with some of these friends coming from a Muslim background. And I don't know, I don't know Arabic, um, but I, something that I noticed was that as they were praying, they were praying to Allah. This might be obvious to some of you who are like more cultured and linguistically informed than I am. But I was like, oh, you're praying to Allah. Like, oh, that, that's just the word for God in Arabic, right? But so, so I'm intrigued, though. So I dig a little bit deeper and I ask my Egyptian friends, I'm like, hey, when you pray, like you're coming from a, a Muslim background, right? Like when you pray to Allah, are you praying to a different God now? Or is he just different than you thought he was? Does that question make sense? It made sense in my mind at the time. Is, he, is it a different Allah or is he just different than you thought he was? He didn't even hesitate. He's just like, oh, he's the same God. He's just so different than what we thought he was. We had no idea what he was actually like. And these guys, they're so captivated by a king who wields his power with love. Not to coerce and not using the, um, you know, the hope for reward or, or fear of, of um, punishment, but a God who leads with love, who wields his authority with love. And in just such a deep experience of being loved by him that they made a choice that we're going to follow Jesus. So it blew me away. It blew me away. So... All right, so we're, we're moving ahead with this, uh, this series on the Beatitudes, which we're calling Flourish. And over the last couple of weeks, we've broken down the first couple of statements that Jesus makes. We're going to continue on with that today. Um, we're going to continue on unpacking. See, in, in, in this section of Scripture, in Matthew 5 through 7, it's what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the first section of this is what we call the Beatitudes. And these are these, these statements where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Or as we're translating this, we find a little more accurate and helpful for us is flourishing are the poor in spirit. Or as we looked at last week, flourishing are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So Jesus lays out this vision. Imagine Jesus early on in his ministry. Okay, so this is early on in, 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 in Matthew's account of, of Jesus. He's up on the mountain with his disciples, and then it says that the crowds were gathered, and he's laying out, like, think of it like a manifesto, okay? So this is like his vision for his kingdom and how the world is intended to work and how it is slowly beginning to work as his authority is unveiled. You with me? So this is Jesus' manifesto for the kingdom. And just like my, my Muslim friends, just like Chris, my Muslim background friends, and just like, uh, just like Chris, what we find is that his kingdom is crazy. Like it just flips everything upside down. It's earth shattering. It's totally a reversal of the world's order. He's saying, this is how I intended things to work. 
and this is how I'm unveiling. This is the kingdom that I'm unveiling. And he starts off with these series of statements. Here's the way that things work. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. Those who, those who are poor in spirit flourish. So I wanna, uh, we're going to get to the specific passage that we're going to have today, which is Matthew 5.5. 5. I want to say just a couple more things about this word choice of flourishing, just kind of some review for us. So one of the reasons that, we, that we're choosing to, to go with this word flourishing is that, first of all, um, the word blessed. What, how, do we use, how do we use that word today? What, what do you guys think? What, what's a couple of ways that, that we use the word blessed today? What's that? Healthy. All right, so being healthy. So that's a part of, of being blessed, right? Um, being fortunate, is that, yeah, and it can be, yes, when somebody says, bless you, yeah, um, and this is like, and there's, there's like a broad range of uses, right, it's kind of like love, like I love my wife, I love tacos, I love Nutella, you know, like it's, so bless, like, you know, you might like find a parking spot, and you're like, oh, hashtag blessed, you know, like, it's just, it's so broad, it's so, we've kind of, like, lost our, our substance there, we've kind of lost our way with this word. Um, so that's, that's one thing, just like, in our cultural context, we need something a little bit more to hold on to, so we feel like this word flourishing captures a little more accurately what Jesus is saying in these statements. Now, the second thing is that we can, when, when we're reading with, um, with this word blessed from our cultural context, it's easy for us to look at these statements as transactional. In other words, like Jesus saying, if you mourn, I will bless you. If you're poor in spirit, I will bless you. So like an if, then, if you do this. And it's like God's waiting up in heaven to like dispense blessing on those who are poor in spirit. That's not in line with the text. That's not in line with God's character. So we're, we're pushing that to the side. We're saying, okay, guys, let's just push that to the side. This is not transactional. In other words, it's not prescriptive of action do this and then this, it's descriptive of the way that things work. Does that difference make sense? It's not prescribing action, it's describing this. Imagine Jesus is up on the mountain, he's laying out his vision for the kingdom. This is the way that my kingdom works. Flourishing are those who are poor in spirit, for they will see God. Flourishing, those, those who mourn are flourishing because they are comforted. Flourishing, to our passage today, flourishing are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Flourishing are the meek, they shall inherit the kingdom, they shall inherit the earth. Uh, let's pray, ask God to speak to us and teach us today before we move ahead. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've invited us into your family and you made a place for us in your kingdom. We pray that you would continue to guide us as a church, guide us through these statements that you make, Jesus, um, to know you more and more. Help us to know how we can grow in meekness and life in your presence and in your kingdom, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as we look at meekness, uh, we're going to, first of all, we're going to kind of grab on to... Uh, King David's coattails. So we're going to follow King David and let him kind of guide us through 
some, some snapshots of, of meekness from his life. Okay, so we're going to follow King David through some episodes, some snapshots in his life, and I want to hit three points. I want to ask three questions, really. What is meekness? Who is meek? And how can we be meek? How to be meek. So who, uh, what is meekness? Who is meek? And how to be meek. In other words, how do we, how, how do we define meekness? What are some characteristics of the meek, and how do we cultivate meekness? So we're going we're to roll ahead here, all right? So in the first part, we're asking, what is meekness? What's, what's the definition of meekness? So I want to say just a couple things that it's not, okay? Meekness is not a rebuke of the strong. Like, picture the person who's, like, proactive, they're ambitious, they're a go-getter, okay? So it's not a rebuke. Of this person, All right, I was talking with uh, with one of my kids just yesterday, and they were like, "Oh, what are you talking about tomorrow?" I said, "Well, we're talking about uh, Jesus. Jesus uh, says that it's good to be meek." And and my my kid goes, "Well, but doesn't God also say to be courageous? Like, how does that does that make sense?" But this is like the the perspective that we're coming at this with. So it's not a rebuke to the courageous, the strong, the ambitious, the proactive. Okay. Nor is it an encouragement to the passive, the person who's like, oh, I'm just fully relying on God by sitting here doing nothing, okay? It's not an encouragement to this person, nor is it a rebuke to that person, okay? Neither of those. It's something completely different. So in 1 Samuel 17, jumping to David, there's a story. If you have no church background, I'm positive if you've grown up in this context or in the U.S., I'm positive that, that you know this story, okay? This is the story of David and Goliath. So, uh, let's break this down a little bit. David's the youngest brother. He is uh, on shepherding duty, and that's not just like off in the, in the pasture. That's like in the hills, like days away from home, right? Like he's alone. He's off in the hills. There are predators around, and he's got uh, his musical instrument and his sling and a bunch of sheep to hang out with. So he's the youngest brother, so that's one duty. His other duty is taking lunch to his brothers on, on the battlefront. And so one day, um, David's dad tells him, hey, go take your brother's lunch. Go take him their food. Let me know how things are going. So David goes out to the, to the battle lines, and this is kind of an ongoing thing. There's always some kind of enemy to, to push back, and the Philistines are kind of like enemy number one at this point. So battle lines are, are drawn, and, and the people, the, the, um, the military of Israel, you know, the soldiers, are, they're out on the battle lines. The other side is the Philistines. And so David brings the lunch. He's checking in. Hey, guys, how are things going? And there's this big, grizzly, surly-looking dude on the other side. Biggest dude any of them have ever seen anyway. And he's yelling, threatening the army of Israel. Now, David, David starts asking, what, what's going on? What's this about? What's going on here? And as, as Goliath, the giant on the other side, yells, the soldiers on David's side start hiding. And so David, this, uh, this shepherd dude, is confused. He's like, why is everybody hiding? Imagine, like the soldiers, literally, they start hiding. And David's like, what's going on? And he starts asking questions, and his oldest brother <laughs> starts grilling him. Tell me if this sounds familiar. He's like, hey, why aren't you doing your work? You're just, why, you're so prideful. Why are you out here asking all these questions? Go back and do your job. And David says, quote, what have I done? Can't I speak? Does that sound familiar to you, youngest sibling? <laughs> what have I done? Can't I speak? 
That's, that's 1 Samuel 17, 21, by the way. Very, very profound. Uh, all right, so, so David goes to the king. He goes to Saul, who noticeably is not at the battlefront. He's back in his tent, kind of removed in a little more place of safety. Okay, so David, David goes to Saul, and he makes this statement, 1 Samuel 17. He says, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. So, pretty bold statement coming from Shepherd Lunchboy, right? Like, but he's just, he's just being real. Hey, this happened. I'm pretty sure it will happen again here. I have this experience in this context. I'm pretty sure that will carry over to this context. And so Saul, a little background there. Saul, we're told in the very beginning, we're introduced to Saul. He's a head and shoulders bigger than every other person in Israel. He's a big, strong, handsome dude. Also, it had been... It had been said that the job of the king would be to protect the people from the Philistine enemy. So, real quick, who do you think is expected and supposed to be out there on the battlefront? Saul, right? And, but he's, he's hanging out in his tent. And David comes in and is like, hey, you know, this, this thing happened with the bear. This thing happened with the lion. Like, God's with me. God's with us. Well, let's just go after it. And he says, I'll go and fight him. And Saul says, cool. All right, but here's the thing. If you're going to go, you're supposed to take all this stuff. We got this cutting edge stuff over here. We got this sword. We got this armor. We've got this helmet. Here, check this out. Check out this breastplate. You're going to love this. I got something you're going to love back here in the corner. And, um, and David tries it on, and he's like, nah, it's not me. I'll stick with what I know. I'll stick with what I have and um, the way that God has worked in me and through me, Okay. You, you do you, <laughs> I'll do me, and we'll be good. So we know the story. David goes out. And uh, I want to break this down visually for us a little bit. So, all right, this is going to be my uh, work of art. So here's David. Okay? He is, so, and here's big surly dude Goliath. Is not proportional, okay? Um, this is a crown. David is not, his vision is not filled with Goliath. He is looking to someone greater. He's looking to a king who's also a father for his people. And through that, his vision of himself changes, okay? His vision is filled with a, with a king and a father who loves and cares for his people, who's powerful and wants to deliver his people Therefore, his vision of himself changes and his vision of his circumstances change. You with me? Pretty simple, but pretty profound. His vision of himself changes, his vision of his circumstances and the world change as he sees, as his field of vision is filled with a king, a loving king who cares for his people. His, his, there's a sense of identity here. And there's a sense of authority here there's a sense of opportunity here and of power in obedience 
for him to walk out as his vision is filled with who God is. David fights a giant and he kills him. All right, so David's meekness. So coming back to the statement from Jesus. Uh, Flourishing are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. David's meek, we see this here. David's honest about who God is. He's honest about who he is, and he walks that out in his circumstances. Um, the message version of this, uh, this passage in Matthew 5.5, 5, um, I like this. It says, you're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. Read that a few times over again. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. And that's really what David's exhibiting here, right? He's saying, I'm good with who I am. And who I am is good enough because we have a father and a king who loves us. He's going to use good enough to do what he wants to do. So Saul, on the other hand, is not meek. Saul's the biggest dude around. He shrinks back, right? And this is what, this is what someone who's not meek does. They, they kind of raise when, when we're not meek, like when we notice in ourselves, Saul is puffed up or he shrinks back. And it's one or the other. He's puffed up or he shrinks back. He's puffed up or he shrinks back. It's this, like this contrast between David and Saul is this, this contrast between act, being active and being passive, being meek, and being prideful. Saul's pride is that he's focused on himself. He's focused on his circumstances. He's focused on his inadequacies, his, his deficiencies. David is not caught up in that. So, all right, meekness is not weakness. It's not a rebuke to the strong and an encouragement to the passive. Uh, it's something completely different. It's a, it's, a, it's a completely different, it's a third way. It's not one or the other, and it's not some middle ground. Like, just, just find some balance. There's no balance. Okay, it's something completely different. It's purposeful, and it's proactive. Meekness is a person recognizing their power and wielding it for the benefit of others in submission to God. So if you're taking notes, that's, that's, that's a line you want to catch, okay? Meekness is recognizing our power in wielding it for the benefit of others in submission to God. Honestly recognizing our power. All right, so this takes us to our second question. Who's meek? <laughs> Jesus, amen. What are the characteristics? Let's break that down. But you know, All right, let's take Jesus. What are the things about Jesus that we can follow? Jesus says, follow me, right? So that's real life. He's saying, follow me. In other words, there are things about and within Jesus that we can follow and grow in. So people who are meek do a couple of different things. They recognize the source of their power, and they recognize the purpose of their power. All right, so David, later on, he's serving in um, Saul's court. It seems like Saul wants to kind of keep him close. All right, so David killed Goliath. David's super popular. People are singing pop songs about David all throughout Israel. And he's, he's like growing in popularity. 
And so Saul brings him in. He's also a great musician. Saul's starting to lose his mind a little bit because he's full of jealousy and fear. He's jealous of this young, popular warrior, and he's fearful he's going to lose his throne. He's holding on. Imagine he's holding on to his throne just like he's not moving. And he's starting to lose his mind a little bit. But when David plays his music that he practiced out in the hills, the sheep, it soothes Saul. It seems like Saul wants to keep him close. And uh, eventually Saul starts doing some crazy stuff like throwing spears at David. And so David has to run for his life. He goes into exile, and he goes into the wilderness. So he's living in, in exile, and he's living in caves. And the craziest thing about this, this blows my mind, the craziest thing about this is that David had already been anointed as king. Old dude named Samuel, servant of God, came around David's family's place, poured oil over his head and said, you're the new king. Like it had already been done. Okay. But David, what's amazing to me about David is that he wouldn't take the throne in his own strength. He, he, in his honor for God, in his honor of the king who God had chosen, he wasn't going to take the throne in his own strength. Blows me away. So David's already anointed king. Saul is still the actual king, and are the king in, in power, and he's throwing spears at David, so he has to run away. And this is where um, this is where some of the some of our psalms come from. So read. So let's read some of these things in context. So Psalm thirty four, um, David writes these words, and if you have one of those Bibles that gives you like, the the nifty like subtitle, here's what it says. Psalm 34, when David pretended to be insane with Abimelech, who drove him away. <laughs> so, so David's in exile, and he writes these words. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to the Lord are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's in exile, and he's writing these words. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Or we jump ahead to Psalm 142, which in your Bible subtitle might say, written by David when he was in a cave. Literally, that's what, that's what, that's what the, the descriptive will say there. When he was in a cave. Verse 5, Psalm 142, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living, and attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Flourishing are the meek. Or in Psalm 54, when a bunch of people snitched on David and said, hey, Saul, he's over here. Psalm 54, verse 4, it says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble. My eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Okay. This is the crazy thing. David's fully depending on Jesus as he's running for his life and writing poems from a cave. And he's saying, Lord, the throne is yours. I will not take it by my strength. It is yours. All right, so here's the first point. 
People who are meek know the source of their power. They know that it comes from God. They know that their skills, their abilities, their influence, their resources, in other words, everything that they have going for them in society, economically, personally, spiritually, everything that they have has a source and it comes from God. Therefore, therefore, they're surrendered to God, right? All those things come from God, so it's natural then to surrender those things to God. The second point I want to make is that so that people who are meek know the source of their power. Secondly, people who are meek know the purpose of their power. It's not for their own benefit. It's not for our own benefit. It's about accomplishing God's work in setting things right in his world. It's a theme from scripture, right? Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. First um, John says that we love because he first loved us. Like you're given to give. Um, Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 that you are a work of art. You're a masterpiece. You are God's workmanship created for good works that he's prepared. We're always, we're overflowing. We're overflowing. And the more that we have a, a position of, we position and posture ourselves to overflow, the more that we receive. This is the difference in, in God's perspective of power in God's kingdom is that it's not limited. I don't have to hold on to it, right? Because the more that I give it away, the more I receive, and you receive, and you're blessed, and I'm blessed, because God just keeps on giving and giving. You can never outgive God. Has anybody ever outgiven God? He's always giving. He gave his only son, right? What? He's giving gifts. He's, like, he's just giving, giving, giving all throughout Scripture. So people who are meek, they know the source of their power. They know the purpose of their power. And, but there's a third thing. And it's that they acknowledge that there's a gap between those things. There's a gap between God's intention for our power in his world and the way that we use it. People who are meek, we acknowledge that my life is not in line. The way that I wield my influence, my skills, my resources, my power is not in line because of my brokenness, because of my limited perspective, because of my lack of vision, my lack of wisdom, my fear, my selfishness. I cling. I do. I cling to what's mine, what's been given to me, because I'm afraid or because I'm proud. The people who are meek acknowledge that, acknowledge that gap. Therefore, submitting to God and saying, you know what, my perspective on this situation is probably not right. Let me ask the Lord how, let me seek the Lord about how to respond. I know that my gut reaction is probably not right. Let me seek the Lord about how to respond. Let me invite good people, righteous people around me to speak into this situation. Does that make sense? We're seeking the Lord for guidance, not just reacting, not just reacting according to our gut, but seeking the Lord for guidance, how to respond to situations that we find ourselves in and inviting good counsel and wise people around us. Saying, hey, seek the Lord with me. Challenge me. Refine me. I know, I know my vision is off. I know I so easily get entangled in all this mess. Help me. Okay, so meek people know the source of their power. They know the purpose of their power. And they know that there's a gap in that intention and reality. 
is a couple different times when David had the opportunity to take Saul out. And he didn't. And one time, he, while Saul was sleeping, David's out in the wilderness. Saul and his, and his guys are, are hunting David. Saul goes up, uh, David goes up while Saul's sleeping on the ground. So David's a fugitive, right? He's a refugee. He goes up and he cuts off the corner of King Saul's cloak. And he felt so horrible about it that he lamented. He grieved and he repented. Because it was dishonoring. He was, he was using his own power to lunge for that authority, lunge for that place of power. He wouldn't do it by his own strength. One other situation I want to highlight is um, later on when David finally becomes the, the visible king. What would have been normal at that point would be for the king to then eradicate the family and the lineage of the previous king. You with me? Like get rid of all those people. But David, on the other hand, he goes and seeks out the grandson of Saul. Not so he can kill him but so he can show him kindness. There's a guy named Mephibosheth. Try to say that three times. Mephibosheth, which we'll talk about here in just a few minutes. So David won't do it by his own strength. I want to just, I want to make a couple of uh, comments just quickly about power within our context, all right? Um, Worldly perspective and a, and, a, and a biblical kingdom of God perspective. Um, like I said, power is anything that, that, that we have going for us, right? Skills, abilities, influence, resources, etc. My academic background in sociology has trained me to see the world through a lens of power and to kind of like be honestly kind of on this, uh, on the hunt for imbalances. Who has the power? Who doesn't? And how can we... Like if they must, if they have power, they they're likely abusing it, or if they've gotten it wrong. Because there's power, there's like this much power, and if you have some, that means somebody else doesn't have some. That's like my, <laughs> that's the lens that I was trying to look at the world through and look at society through. And this can be super useful, but it has its limitations. It's a useful lens to look at, but it has its limitations. From a worldly perspective, power is viewed as a finite resource, and whoever has it is viewed with suspicion. But in the kingdom of God, power is something that's intended to be given away, right? Like it flows through us. You empower other people. You give away. It flows through you to benefit, to benefit others. In other words, it's a gift to be stewarded. And we might use different words to talk about power. We might call it privilege. We might use a different word to fill in the gap there, depending on the context and what's most helpful. Whatever we call it, we're often unaware of it until it's working against us, right? So I don't want to comment too deeply on this. I just want to say when you're riding your bike and the wind's behind you, it feels great. You don't really notice it's there until, what, you turn around and the wind's in your face, and how's that feel? You're like, man, it's a windy day. Oh, my goodness. Whew. It's been windy all day. It was just working for you before, Right? Like, we're often unaware of what we have to, to bestow on others. I don't want to belabor that right now except to challenge us forward, okay? Between political arguments and all this, like, I just want us to ask, Lord, what have you given me? What have you put in my hand? What do I have going for me that I can give away for your purposes, Okay? What have you put into my hand, into my life, 
How can I use it in accordance with your purposes in this world? All right, so meekness is not a rebuke for the strong. It's not an encouragement to the passive. It's a challenge. It's a challenge for the wise to, and proactive and the ambitious to be humble and to seek the Lord. It's a challenge to the passive to get off your chair <laughs> and wield what you have. Acknowledge it. Meek people are strong without having to remind us that they're strong. They're powerful without needing to be overbearing. They have authority, but they don't really need to talk about it. They protect the weak from oppression. They love passionately, not wantonly, confident without being arrogant. Meekness, we, we, we long for it in a boss, in a father, in a mother, in a leader. It's embodied in Jesus. All right, so how do we be meek? The third point, how do we be meek? How do we cultivate meekness in our lives? These first couple of passages in the Beatitudes, um, well, if we, if we look at the Beatitudes, these, these statements that Jesus makes, a blessed are, flourishing are, there's a progression through it. And so to, to get at this, how do we cultivate it? I just want to hit on the last couple of weeks that we've had together. Flourishing are those who are poor in spirit. They will see God. Flourishing are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So how do we cultivate meekness? Just building off of this, for one, it comes through seeing God. And secondly, it comes through grieving the way that things ought to be and that there's a gap in our reality, okay? So being poor in spirit, being poor in spirit comes through seeing God and seeing, as we see God, we see ourselves more clearly and I see that there's a gap between who God is and who I am. Oh, my word, there's a gap there. And there's a gap between who God intended me to be and who I actually am today. There's a gap there. Therefore, I am poor in spirit. I need you, Lord. And the weird thing is that as I am poor in spirit and, and, I'm, and I'm being honest about who I am and, what, and who God is, is that, that that's, what, that's what Scripture refers to as the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is having reverence, relating to God for who he really is and being honest about who we really are. Psalm 25 makes this statement that the Lord confides in those who fear him. In other words, like as we have reverence, as we see God and we're honest about who he is, it actually enables us to go deeper in relationship with God. He confides. Another version says friendship with the Lord is for those who fear him. When we're real about who he is and who we are, God can invite us into deeper relationship, revelation with him, fellowship with him. Seeing God more clearly. The second, the second thing that, that helps us moving toward um, meekness is wrapped up in the statement that flourishing are those who mourn. Like I just said, there's a gap between God's intention for me, God's intention for the world, and I want to mourn that. And Jesus did that even, even as, he, as his buddy Lazarus died. What did Jesus do? Shannon talked about this last week. Jesus wept, right? And he knew, like, it's just weird to me because he knew that he was going to raise him from the dead. But he, was, uh, but he was so taken aback with that pain, apparently, that death was real. 
He was mourning the gap between the way that God meant for the world to work and the way that it actually works. When we make a practice of seeking God and seeing him more clearly, when we grieve this gap between the intentions and realities of this world, we begin, we see this thing start to happen. It cultivates meekness in our hearts. We see God more clearly. It starts this cycle. We see God more clearly. We know he's the source of, his, of our power. We see God, and the more that we see God, the more that we care about his world. And the more that we see God, the more that we see ourselves more clearly and what we carry and what's in our hands and that we can wield it for him. All right, so flourishing our flourishing flourishing are the meek. This is not transactional. It's not a guarantee of success, okay? This is not a statement of like if you do this, God's going to bless you and you're going to live your best life yet, best life ever, best life now, whatever. Okay? It's not a guarantee. Sometimes it works because we like meekness, right? We, we want a boss. We want a leader like that. Sometimes that works out. But sometimes the world works against what God intends. And you might suffer for your meekness. You might be punished for your meekness and not an unwillingness to wield your power while others are willing. It's not a report card for us to, uh, to sign off on and, and turn into Jesus. He's not like... He's not prescribing action to us because it's not, being a Christian is not about right action. It's about a person, right? It's about following Jesus. He's inviting us not to some act set of, of, of tasks and action. He's inviting us to himself. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who come to me, who know me, therefore know yourself and know my world. All right, so David. Coming back to this, this final little snapshot of David's life. How did David wield his power? So David seeks out Saul's son. He, he loved, he had a deep friendship with, uh, with Saul's son, Jonathan, and he sought out Saul's grandson, this guy named Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth's a little bit freaked out. And he's like, hey, are you going to kill me? I'm just a dog. I'm just a dog. This is in 2 Samuel 9. And David makes this statement. 2 Samuel 9, verse 7, don't be afraid. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And verse 13 says, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Mephibosheth had been dropped as a kid when, when his nurse was fleeing, when his dad and grandpa died in battle. She's, she's running away, and she drops Mephibosheth. She falls, drops him, and both his feet break for the rest of his life. He's crippled. David didn't just spare Saul's grandson. He invited him where? To his table, right, to eat with him every day. At the table, Mephibosheth's shame is covered. His crippled, broken feet are covered at the table, and he's at that table every day. A place of honor. David didn't just spare him. He brought him into flourishing. His shame was covered and unseen. David wielded his power with patience and passion. He was humble and proactive. <laughs> David wasn't perfect, but he invited God 
to show him who he was more clearly. So here's, here's the question for us. We'll wrap up with this. How is, uh, how's God extending an invitation to you or a challenge to you today? DR, we're church family. We're, we're, we want to grow as disciples together, okay? A community that is growing in discipleship, discipling one another. As you see God more clearly, how is he changing your vision of yourself? How is God changing the way that you see yourself and your circumstances? The meek recognize all that they have going for them. Here's a question I want you to, to ask. Uh, what's, in, what's in my hand? What's in my hand? What's the truth about who I am? What's in my hand? And secondly, how is God inviting you to join his work in his world? What's in my hand? And what's the invitation to join God, his work in his world? Let's pursue meekness today, okay? Let's pursue meekness today. Let's cultivate it passionately, even when it costs us our lives. Jesus' meekness cost him his life at the hands of weaker men. It cost him his life. There's no guarantee that it won't cost us our lives. But Jesus, just like David, has, has invited us to his table. Our shame is covered. And he's invited us into love and power by giving us his spirit. Let's pursue meekness today and understand what that looks like in our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are meek. You've invited us, Lord, to live out a life of meekness with you. And that you, you chose that, Lord. You've invited us to your table. And as we're at your table, you cover up our shame. You don't hold it against us. Lord, you invite us to yourself to feast and flourish with you. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are, the invitation to you, and the invitation to join you in your work. Help us to see today, Lord, what's, what's in our, what power do we possess? What's in our hands? And how can we use that together with you? Jesus, thank you. Thank you. As we continue, we'll have a time of response now, and uh, we want to take communion together, so I want to invite you up as we worship to um, partake in Jesus' invitation, to remember his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. Let's take joy in his sacrifice and invitation to us.